0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saki Bali. And I don't know, I found someone familiar today, who hasn't been here for a while. Uh, it's Matt Zemek. Hey, Matt, how are you?
1: It's great to be back, Saki. You know, uh, for international listeners who uh, don't follow the American sports calendar very closely. Uh, we had March Madness college basketball that completely consumed my life in March through Miami. But Clay season, definitely on board the tennis train. So great to be back with you.
0: All right. So I'm going to test your rally and point construction in this podcast. I don't think you have lost any edge, but I'll try to like is building his stamina somewhere in Europe. Let's see what you've got for the listeners here. And let's start with Stefano Sitsipas. You, me, Andrew, Mert, Susie. A lot of people have been talking about this guy and his uh, and his rise has been very strategic. You know, like this guy came on the scene. You know, I, I interviewed him, you know, when he was a rookie for the podcast and his talk has been growing up. But, you know, we all have been talking about the big title. He won the Tour Finals, had made his Grand Slam semis, you know, played, uh, you know, beat Rafa Nadal at the Australian Open. But this was a big moment. You know, he came in this week. We expected him to do something similar in Miami. I know you've been active on Twitter. Uh, break down this win. I mean, he lost. He didn't, he didn't even lose a set. I mean, yeah, he played like one set less because his... Uh, quarterfinal or semifinal opponent withdrew but overall I mean what a flawless week and you know he's in the conversation right now for French Open favorites so fire away.
1: Yeah I mean he is did not even need a, a tiebreaker in any of the sets he won he he won a 7-5 set against Davidovich Fukina. Fokina uh, and then you know that was then uh, Fokina uh, re- retired from that match, but he was just drilling people all week, and that continued through uh, the final against Rublev, three and three. I mean, routine wins. And you know, the main thing to to stress with Tsitsipas, Sakib in Monte Carlo is that you know this was the antithesis of his Miami. You know, in Miami, that was a bizarre loss to Herkoc, uh in in the quarters. Uh, really, just disjointed, uh, very disconnected kind of performance. Uh, from a, what was a winning scoreboard position, uh, yep. that's a match that a player of his caliber ought to win. I mean, that's nothing against Hurkacz. It's just you know when you're in, when you expect to be an elite player as Tsitsipas does, and you know he said it all starts in Monte Carlo. He wrote that on the camera. So like the, he he views this as the start of something much bigger. You know he he expects to win several majors before his career is done. So when you have that mentality, the kind of uh, loss he he. Endured in Miami. You know, that was not part of the plan, and it was not reflective of both his talent and his competitive ability. You know, and of course, this is the guy who came from two sets down to beat Rafael Nadal at the Australian Open. Who, how many people come from two sets down to beat Rafa at any major tournament at any point in time? You're obviously special if you can do that. So when he lost in Miami, you know, that was a really wayward moment. And so he needed to get his head on straight, needed to snap into focus needed to be business-like, professional, nose to the grindstone, boom. That's exactly what we saw in Monte Carlo. Every match was a business-like match, cold, clinical, efficient, solid, high percentage. You know, it's not as though he reinvented the wheel against Rublev. He just played so- played solid tennis, dictated with his forehand, uh, you know, took, took the very impressive Rublev forehand, which had beaten Rafa earlier in the week, and he shut it down. Uh, just just a, a commanding, professional kind of performance uh, from someone who clearly has his sights set on bigger things. One other note to make about Sitsipas, while we're on this, Sakib, is that when we talked to Mert Ertunga to review the Australian Open uh, a month and a half ago, Mert and I agreed that Sitsipas had a better Australian Open than Daniil Medvedev, even though Medvedev beat Sitsipas in the semis and and advanced one more round in that tournament going to the final against Djokovic. We agreed that Sitsipas had the better tournament because that win over Nadal was far more impressive than any of the wins uh, Medvedev had. And that's not necessarily Medvedev's fault. You know, the draw is the draw. You play whom you play. But nevertheless, given the opponents faced, Sitsipas achieved more at that tournament, even though he didn't go – as deep as Medvedev did. Mert and I were on the same wavelength there. And, you know, so this event in Monte Carlo shows that uh, Sitsipas, you know, really is on track and that Miami was not an indicator so much as an aberration. That's really what Monte Carlo established for me.
0: No, I think very well said, and uh, it's pretty clear. Again, uh, I think we've also talked about this in the past. I think and there's a good chance. I think we are all on the same page. He seems like an all-court player. He's had great results uh, on the hard courts. Of course, Grass, you know, he hasn't put the results that is expected, but still a very young career. But it, it's in, no doubt in my mind that clay presents the best chance you know, I'm, I, I'm not a technical wizard like like Mert. I don't know the footworks and the grips, but he's, his trajectory, even by scoreboard watching and his performances, let's look at his last three Roland Garros losses. In 2018, played a very competitive four-setter against Dominic Thiem, and he was no way out of few of those sets. Then in 2019, played by some measures match of the year against Stan Wawrinka. And then last year, you, you and I talked about his five-set loss to Novak Djokovic, where he ran out of steam in the fifth set. So this is a guy, you know, not only has he, you know, taken like gradual, you know, strides, he, he's, he's, I mean, his results don't, don't lie. I think Clay is where I think his best chance is going to be if he, of course, Rafa all is his kingdom and we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but you know, this is an exciting time in men's tennis. So if you want to weigh in, you know, do you agree with my sentiments on, you know, what Clay presents to him overall and where he's at 2021 in terms of like, you know, if you, if you have a ranking order, you know, I know you tweeted some things about it. So if you want to combine an answer here.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I tweeted that uh, with this win, that Stefanos uh, is currently the the foremost threat at Roland Garros outside of uh, Nadal number one, Djokovic number two. And that got a lot of uh, commentary and a lot of disagreement. And so uh, just a few things need to be clarified here. Uh, saying Tsitsipas is the foremost non-Big Three threat at Roland Garros, that doesn't mean that he's a better clay court player than Dominic Team uh, overall, and especially when healthy. You know, when healthy, Dominic Team's the guy who's made multiple Roland Garros finals. He's beaten Djokovic and Nadal uh, at at the French, or, or he's beaten Djokovic at the French, but he's beaten Nadal at other majors. Um, he's won. I mean, now now Sitsipas has that win over Nadal. But team has beaten the Raful, you know, more times at major tournaments than Sitsipas has, and team has established himself at Roland Garros more than Sitsipas has. So if if, you know if if team is healthy and is in good form, you know he's better than Sitsipas, and and very few people would dispute that. I mean, there might be one or two in a room of one hundred, but you know, not very many would dispute that. But we're not talking about if team's healthy because team's not healthy. Team is, you know, has been, uh, ha- had to regroup, you know, since the Australian Open when he wasn't healthy against Dimitrov. Uh, he, you know, it's not a verdict on the quality of team's tennis. His body just isn't right. So it, it, saying that Tsitsipas is the foremost threat to Rafa and Djokovic at the French, it's about team's injury. Yes, it's partly because of Monte Carlo. I think the Sitsipas needed to earn that status. I think a lot of people were handing it to him by default, Sockham. I think there was just a vacuum. Sitsipas really needed to do something to actually merit that, and he did it in Monte Carlo. But, like, after Miami, well, there were fresh questions about whether Stefanos was really ready to stamp himself as that foremost non-Big 3-3. Threat in Paris. So now he's actually done something about that. And as for team, you know, if he gets healthy and he does something really good in Madrid or Rome, we'll we'll revisit this conversation. So it's not as though it's a final settled thing, Saqib. This can change in the several weeks that we have until Roland Garros starts on May 30th. That's a month and a half away. But right now, today, as we talk, uh, Sitsipas certainly, I think, is closer to uh, contending for the Roland Garros title than Team is. That, that, to me, is not a particularly controversial statement. Now, if, if Team makes like a Madrid semifinal and he doesn't go all the way, okay, maybe that's more of a debate. But right now, Sitsipas is plainly in the better position, playing well, got his mentality figured out, took care of business. Now he has a master's win, so that could feed his confidence. I mean, he has a lot of arrows pointing in the right direction and team has not been healthy. So which player would you choose? You know, it's, it's really rather simple.
0: No, I think you do make a lot of sense. And uh, it's funny, like, you know, uh, the moment you put the tweet out, I put something similar out and, and I think a lot of tennis brains work similarly. A lot of people were talking about this kind of a thing. And Dominic team is one guy who didn't hit a ball, I think for the last month or so, but he was, very active. His name was trending on Twitter because of Stefano Sitsipas ascendance, you know, as a top threat because uh, Naval, who was on our podcast last week, uh, also mentioned him, uh, Sitsipas as being the top threat outside of Nadal, even ahead of Djokovic. But yeah, I think Dominic team, it's pretty interesting. Now, if you look back, the sample size is bigger, you know, hindsight is always, you know, you can say things with more comfort. Uh, And I'm not a fan because of saying, uh, a win got the juices out of him. But if you look at team, I mean, after reaching, after winning the U.S. Open, he took a break. Then he had that bumpy French Open where, you know, Hugo Gaston pushed him. Then he was not fully fit. He said he was maybe low in energy, played a, that great five-setter against Diego Schwarzman. Then he didn't play great tennis after that till the World Tour Finals. And we all know he was pretty close. He was, you know, a set-up, and then they played a tie-break. And he didn't, you know, end up winning the tournament. And this year, like you said, he's five and four. And there's a lot of news coming out of Austria. I think this is not a good week for Dominic Team. Like one of his buddies, uh, Dennis Novak, left his dad's academy to join Gunther Bresnick. You know, Team hasn't been in the best of health. Yeah, I think uh, what I'm trying to say here is Team. You know, going back to your metric of uh, Medvedev and Sitsipas with Austrian Lopen. And I'll disagree slightly. I think what you made a great point, but I think if Team comes back in Madrid, his uh, resume is huge on clay. You know, him reaching a semi, maybe in the current climate that he hasn't played a lot of tennis would be okay. But if he's healthy, I think a lot of people expect Team to start winning titles because he's already 27. And there's an interview uh, he, I think, gave to an Austrian magazine where he said, you know, he's committed all his life to tennis for the last 15 years. And there has been an emotional and physical cost you know, tennis is still his priority. So I think that's an interesting interview when it comes out and we'll hope some of our Austrian or German-speaking friends will translate it, but there's a lot going on there. So maybe there is some injury, maybe there's some burnout. You know, I have an Austrian friend who follows the pulse of Austrian tennis very closely. He told me they don't know if it's totally an injury. It could be just like he hasn't started his comeback preparation. So there's a lot going on at the Dominic team front. So without speculation, I, I'm totally in the same, you know, same uh, sense, the same wavelength as you that Tsitsipas has earned it. Because, you know, at the end, like with the famous Agassi line, when he said about Spadia, you don't look at the tour for talent, you look at the performance. And team has a bigger resume, agree, Matt? But Stefano Tsitsipas has won what 24 matches this year, has come close in Acapulco, in Australia, and Rotterdam. And here he is, you know, like Monte Carlo champion, so well-deserved. And uh, another guy who's made a lot of strides, Andre Ruble, we've briefly spoken about him. What is your take? Where do you pick him in the pecking order of the men's tennis right now, you know, leading up to Roland Garros? clay wasn't his automatic surface, but since last year, he won in Hamburg over at Tsitsipas, made the Roland Garros quarterfinals, and uh, looked pretty good this week. Took out, a, took out a guy called Rafael Nadal in Monte Carlo. So weigh in on his week, and where do you stack him against the big boys?
1: Well, I think the foremost place to start for Andre Rublev is that, you know, he lost the second set to Nadal because of a, a really brain dead point you know he was right on top of the net and he smashed the ball north south you know down vertically and uh, he sm- not, he smashed it into Rafa's forehand corner and Rafa was running to that corner anyway but you know Rafa it's easier to play defense on the forehand side than it is on the backhand side because with the forehand you can just flick your wrist, you know, with a one-handed forehand and 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 block the ball back rather than having to hit the two-hander uh from a defensive position. So I mean if Rublev was going to smash that ball vertically, he should have smashed it into the backhand corner, but he smashed it in the forehand corner. The play all along, of course, was just to lightly tap the ball over the net. There was no way that Nadal was going to go there. So it was just a really uh, just a lapse in thought and concentration from Rublev. Rafa, you know, got to the ball, blocked it back for a winner to break, uh, ran off the last four games of the second set, and so a match that Rublev had completely been controlling was then a set apiece. And of course, as uh, journalists had pointed out during that match on Friday, Nadal had never lost a third set in Monte Carlo ever. Not once, you know, of all the times that he of the few times that he's lost in Monte Carlo, none of them were in three sets. So Rublev had to climb that particular mountain and most players in his situation would have wilted. Rublev did not. He he reset himself, rededicated himself, just got back on the bike, got back to business and he won that third set going away. So that is a very impressive statement. It's an eye-opening statement. It tells me about his toughness. It tells me about his ability to you know, do the thing that a lot of tennis players fail to do, and that is to shut out the voices in the head, shut out the, the, the internal criticism and self-loathing and fear, and just focus on hitting the next ball. It's easy to say it's very hard to do at the very highest level. Andre Rublev is a very young tennis player, and yet he was able to find that. And so, you know, a lot like, uh, you know, I was, you know, Alexander Zverev might never win a major tournament, but I thought he would. And I thought he would on the day that he very clinically took apart Djokovic in that Rome final because it was such a calm, measured display of focus and clarity in a big moment. That's when I thought Zverev was really going to hit it big. And this was that moment for me with Rublev. You know, he showed uncommon poise for someone so young uh, in a situation where, you know, 98% of his peers would have just crumbled. Uh, so that that is, you know, overwhelmingly uh, the big takeaway from Rublev this week. When you can stand up to Nadal in a three-setter in Monte Carlo after blowing the second set, that's pretty special. That's not an ordinary achievement. Uh, we can say that, you know, Rafa was rusty after several weeks away from live competition and that might be true as far as it goes but Rublev still had to do the work he still had to walk over those hot coals in that third set so that is just a major major takeaway from him when you can have that kind of positive experience doesn't mean you're going to win instantly you know Sitsipas had his moments of success like that Australian Open win over Roger Federer in the fourth round, you know, that was kind of his coming of age moment. Doesn't mean he's going to win a major right away, but it means that he has something to build on so that in the next, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months, you know, he will be able to call forth that memory and in a, in a big moment, it's going to help him. So so the ascendance that we're seeing from Tsitsipas, you know, Rublev's in an earlier stage, but that stage is certainly building towards something better.
0: And yeah, I think to Rublev's credit, he's winning a lot of matches at the, at the 500 and 250 level. So he's very consistent and you're right. He's slightly knocking below that door where Sitsipas, you know, has already joined, you know, he's reached the Grand Slam semis. He's won the world tour finals. So Rublev is just a little below, but I think he's showing a lot of promise and you're right. He, he won the third set, which I didn't know that Nadal hasn't lost a deciding set. Again, he didn't lose many at Monte Carlo. But uh, do you think, uh, again, Matt, I mean, I'm trying to not like discredit the generation uh, before of the Raunich, Nishikori, Dimitrov, and even, you know, like team to a certain extent. But do you think uh, Rublev, Sitsipas, these guys have seen so many, you know, stalwarts fail to the likes of Nadal, Djokovic, Federer at these key moments? And let's talk about Nadal in uh, specificness here. So maybe when Rublev said, I knew like even when I was up a break in the second that he was not going to go away. So I was ready mentally for the fight. So what does that tell you? Is it like, you know, you've seen that movie so many times for others, or is it just like the mindset of a champion that, you know, he knew how great Rafa is, but he never, you know, he never got rattled. I think that's what he said. But what does this say of this guy's mindset? You know, like when he expected that, you know, it's it's going to go down to, you know, some sort of a, some sort of a wire, if not like a like six.
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, to compare to the hashtag ATP Lost Boys, copyright Andrew Burton, uh, to, to compare the, the younger guns to the Lost Boys, I think that the salient comparison is simply that with the Lost Boys, you know, who are in about, you know, age 30, you know, or so, which which represents a lot of experience, the, the salient point there is that being experienced isn't always a good thing. Uh, with the Lost Boys, you know, as you said, Nishikori, Dimitrov, Raonicz, uh, they have a lot of experience at losing to the big three in important matches. So what good is experience when the only experience you have in the really big matches is a negative one, right? So Rublev, Tsitsipas, they don't have that baggage. You know, they, they don't have seven, eight years under their belt as professionals in which they have lost hugely important sets to Rafa and Roger and Novak. They don't have that negative memory. So for Rublev and his contemporaries, it's a clean slate. Plus, of course, you add in the fact that, you know, Nadal and Djokovic, they're in their mid-30s, and they're not going to be able to flip the switch nearly as reliably as they once did. I mean, you know, and see, we, we've what we've seen with Federer over the past five to six years, is what we're beginning to see with Djokovic and Nadal. That as great as Federer was, he couldn't dial up his best quite as reliably as he did in his prime. That doesn't mean he's a le- less intelligent player. Doesn't mean he's a less uh, you know skilled or thoughtful player. But it's just that is that is the aging process. That you're not going to be able to cruise at the same high altitude all the time, you're going to have more ups and downs. Nadal, Djokovic, they've both shown this year uh, that they can play really well in spots, but if that high level is not going to be there all the time. And so the trick is to for the other players to be able to take full advantage when they're not playing at their best. Rublev did that, so it was, it's really a convergence of a lot of different forces when we look at that Rublev Nadal result.
0: Sure. And what about Rafael Nadal? Again, you know, we've seen this before he's happened. He's, these kind of losses have happened. He's lost, you know, a few times in Barcelona, maybe two or three times in Monte Carlo, a little more in Rome, but you know, nothing changes in Paris till something happens in Paris. So, uh, does it change your uh, pre-clay rankings? I know this is a good indicator. You've already put Pass at number three. Uh, you know what does it say for Nadal, and what do you expect of Nadal for the next few weeks?
1: Yeah, so you know we have spent the past fifteen years nitpicking any Nadal loss on clay before Roland Garros, and a lot of people on many occasions have said, you know, Djokovic is the favorite. You know, as soon as Nadal coughs, you know, oh, Djokovic is the favorite for Roland Garros, and even last year, and I mean, and now last year, admittedly. You know, with Djokovic being clearly the best player uh, for, for most of, of, you know, what existed of the season, I mean, it wasn't a full season, it was a truncated one, but last year there were a lot more obvious reasons to pick against Nadal. You know, it was going to be cold, ball wasn't going to travel as much, you know, the, 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 the weather conditions were not likely to be in his favor, you know, different time of year, COVID, all those things, you know, if ever there was a time to legitimately say, well, huh, maybe the normal calculus surrounding Rafa doesn't apply this time. Last year was it. And what happens? He absolutely dismantles Djokovic in the final under a roof, indoors. He he shattered every myth. He shattered every negative uh, inclination or expectation uh, relative to his history and to his fan base. I mean, Rafa fans were absolutely paralyzed with anxiety because there was a roof on for that final and Rafa just clinically you know took apart djokovic in straights so like it, we we've been through the on, on down this road a lot but last year was kind of like the ultimate theoretical test you know everything lining up against rafa well but no he still got it done so if, if you know we're gonna still doubt rafa after another Monte Carlo loss. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, we we just have 15 years of really hard evidence in front of us that Rafa regularly regroups. This doesn't mean Djokovic or perhaps Sizapas or maybe Team can't beat him. Of course they can. And as I've just said, as Rafa gets into his mid 30s and he gets older, he won't be able to flip on the switch quite as regularly. But the other half of this, the other side of this is what we always run into at Roland Garros is that beating Rafa best of three and beating Rafa best of five on Chatrier are two very, very different things. And you know, Sakub, you know, I know, Mert knows, Andrew Burton knows, the whole world knows that if Andre Rublev and Rafael Nadal play at Roland Garros, you know it's going to be different. And maybe Rublev might win, but you know it's going to be a bigger, better battle uh, than what we saw in Monte Carlo. You know Rafa is going to play a lot better. You know he's going to require a lot more from Rublev than he did in that third set in Monte Carlo on Friday. So, you know, Rafa still merits complete trust. The fact that Djokovic did not play well in Monte Carlo, that should really, you know, cement Rafa as the favorite, the number one choice, then Djokovic two, then Tsitsipas three. If we're going to doubt Rafa now, what have you been looking at the past 15 years? That's all I have to say.
0: No, again, and I don't know what uh, how much of the podcast you listen when we're you know doing the Nadal tribute, and I, I I'm guilty as charged. Not it's about doubting Nadal. I think it was my uh, my knowledge of how tennis players age, and you know I've seen the the Sampras's, the Beckers, the McEnroes, you know, Lendl got compromised because of back spasms. So I think, you know, Rafa and the other two guys have just, they continue to defy logic and Rafa Roland Garros is the most absurd example. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, surprise is the wrong word. I think I would be surprised if he's not winning this thing in three or four weeks or five weeks again, but you're right. I mean, all these other guys have legit chances, but best of five on that big Chartier coat, I think is a different beast. I think, uh, you know that's why it's only happened twice so far: Soderling and Djokovic. You know, so so yeah. Uh, I'm on the same page, but I just wanted to get your views. And um, anyone else you want to talk about in Monte Carlo
1: or this week? Well, soccer. I mean, I know that you wanted to talk about Casper Ruth, So oh, after, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, after a run to the semis uh, and after winning some really close, razor's edge. Matches. I mean, that's a very impressive showing for the Norwegian. So, uh, but uh, tell tell our listeners what, what your evaluation of Kaspar Root is right now.
0: I mean, I, I, my evaluation, again, I've been doing a lot of cricket podcasts and I'm guilty as charged. So sometime I either my memory is fading. Uh, I didn't realize that this guy made the semis in Rome last year. So as a preparation for this podcast, I saw, okay, you know, he was very impressive in Monte Carlo. He took out and inspired Fonini. This is one of the best versions of Fonini who was playing like a defending champion. You know, and I was thinking, okay, we can get Fonini in a semi, but both men lost in quarters and Rude uh, handled him, you know, and Fonini was playing. He came out to play that day. So then I look at the ATP scores from last year and I remember, yeah, this guy, you know, took out Berrettini and, you know, lost – Seven five six three in the Rome semi to Djokovic, and uh, he lost to Dominic Team in the Roland Garros round of thirty two. He won his only clay title last year in Buenos Aires before COVID happened, and he reached a final in Brazil, I think. No, I think Chile. So this is a guy. I think he went uh, Matt. He went seventeen and five on clay last year. So his run here, as you know, surprising it may to maybe to some other people. I think it's it's not a coincidence. You know, he's maybe not as talked about as some of the other players who have already advanced and made their cases on ATP, you know, the ATP tour like Rublev Medvedev, uh, you know, are, are and Sitsipas are top top eight guys. They've been to London. Hachanov had won a title. He gets more talked about than Ruud, I think. So Kasper Ruud is for real, I think is and especially beating Karina Busta and uh, Fonini, I think, speaks volume for this week. So I think it's a very interesting follow and I dug even deeper, his uh, three titles on ITF and Challenger Tour have also come on clay. And he also lost four finals on clay. So uh, he he probably can play on all surfaces like most players can these days. But I think he is definitely one name we all should look out for for the rest of the season and the seasons to come. Because I was talking to some friends who really know about his game and, you know, uh, Florian, who's a good friend of mine, I think I already mentioned in the podcast, he has very high hopes of... Uh, Casper Ruud, especially on clay. So his talk is something that, you know, we all should keep an eye on. And let's not be surprised, you know, if we see, you know, more of Ruud dispatching some nice wins leading up to Roland Garros.
1: Absolutely. I think the thing that strikes me about Ruud is that, you know, that Carreño-Busta match, you know, could have gone either way. That was a a 50-50 match. Ruud was very much up against it. Late in the third set, but but found a way to turn that around. So that was an emotionally exhausting match on Thursday. He comes back on Friday, and instead of being emotionally fatigued, which would have been completely understandable after that taxing win over Crenio Busta, he demolishes Fanini. Uh, so that so that you know that is an a, a very much an above average response to a you know a pr- fairly common atp tour situation you win a draining match one day you might be dead the next no rude had was able to hit the reset button he gets right back at it uh he wasn't complacent he wasn't overly satisfied he kept charging uh so that yes that that is a a telltale sign of a guy who's beginning to really understand how to be a professional tennis player
0: and, you know, Matt, yeah, you just yeah. hit the nail on the head right there because we all know the big three and Wawrinka and Murray and all these big players, you know, who, who get the legend title or, you know, epic results and everything. So they are the standard of the game. But evolution of the of the Rublev's and the Roods and Sitsipas and Oji Aliasim, because you and I and others follow the pulse of the tour, so you're absolutely right. Beating the Karina Boosters and Batista Agus, they're great players. But if these guys go through them in like, you know, testing conditions and deciding sets, that is also the passing test that they have to come through to get to the next level, which is, the, you know, to challenge the Nadals and the Djokovic, you know, the, the big players. So I think it's uh, the evolution of Root really uh has been there in the last seven eight months we just need to pay attention closely i'm following him you know starting you know rest of the rest of the clay swing and see what he can do and uh let's wrap this conversation up with the uh, roger federer's schedule so a lot of people have different opinions i want to hear your first and then i can give you know what i talked to murd and Susie, a few others so what do you make of this uh selection what does this tell you is he discounting clay totally he just needs matches uh i thought he should have played madrid but again you know Uh, He knows his tennis best, uh, so. So your views, and you know, when you heard this announcement, and what does this mean for Federer and Federer fans?
1: Well, you know, the 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 main thing is he needs matches. So, you know, I mean, after all this downtime, I mean, he's going to need a a reasonable accumulation of of match play before Wimbledon. You know, which of course is the goal. It's the crown jewel. It's the central focus of his year. He's going to need to play some, and so. Uh, wherever he plays is less important than the fact that he's playing uh, that, you know, that's really the, 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 the central fundamental equation there. I mean, it's, you know, remember this is, this is still not a normal tour year. Didn't have Indian Wells, had the Australian open, uh, uh, you know, a month later. Uh, it's still not the normal rhythm. It's still not the full grind. It, it really is for Federer about being able to be in ideal shape or close to ideal shape for a handful of events. Wimbledon, most of all, also the Olympics, also the U.S. Open, and there really isn't it, this. This isn't like a a ten month or eleven month architecture, Saka. This is not you know it's not it doesn't fit into that kind of normal tour year box. Maybe it will in 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 two thousand twenty two. Uh, assuming you know the pandemic does lift and we get indian wells back uh for the first time since 2019 that's just so weird to say but we could have indian could be a three-year gap between indian wells tournaments uh so in 2022 if we have a normal calendar certain decisions can be seen in a in a more conventional light but this year there still really isn't any sense of conventional decision-making it's all unique it's all specific to the moment um you know fans not being there um you know that that, or at least not in normal numbers that could affect federer's calculus as well um so uh, really there's no uh set manual or playbook for scheduling in a pandemic just as there isn't a manual for scheduling when you're coming up on your 40th birthday in August as Federer is. So uh, if people have strong reactions to Federer's schedule, I mean, my reaction is there's no playbook for this. There's no established way to go about this, not just uh, being an older player, but being in a pandemic.
0: Again, I don't uh, generally disagree with you, but I just have to say this, Uh, you know, even if uh, Federer, you know, was healthy, it was a pandemic year, but others have been playing tennis. So, you know, the jewel of his year is Wimbledon, you know, in the absolute twilight. We, who, who should say he may not play a couple more years, but, you know, he served for the title, what, two years ago against Djokovic. So Wimbledon, no secret that, you know, he's going to put all his energies on. But I was talking to Mert and then Mert said, you know, he expected him to play Madrid. And that means he himself is not giving, you know, clay too much of a chance because what happens if he goes deep? in Geneva. This is back-to-back. He's never done that. I think he's never played the week before Roland Garros. I know this is not your normal year. So in that regard, do you get the sense that Federer himself is not, okay, he just wants matches and rhythm on clay. Uh, nobody expected him to, you know, win Roland Garros at this year or this age, but, you know, who's to say with a good draw? And had he played, had he played Miami, you know, maybe a quarterfinal or semifinal was on the cards.
1: You know, one one thought here is that you know after the two matches he played um, in Doha, you know, Feder look he Feder looked pretty taxed uh, at the end of his loss to Bazlas Vili uh, in Doha, so that could have planted in him the the thought process of, you know, I, maybe I need to get used to playing more uh, in on more days, and maybe he felt that that could be. The best entry point for Roland Garros, coming off, you know, perhaps a few matches in Geneva, and and you know in Geneva, you know, you I mean you play to win, but I have a feeling that you know that could simply be a week to experiment with things. Uh, You know, like you know there won't be huge uh, point totals. Uh, on offer it, at that event. So it's a 250. So it could just be uh, more for uh, a mental exercise in trying certain things out on court. Maybe just playing in a more relaxed environment uh, will give him uh, a different kind of headspace and a different kind of attitude going into Roland Garros and then Wimbledon. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that in a normal tennis situation, Federer would be in Paris the the week leading up to the French Open. He'd do all the media availabilities and he'd practice with players in front of, you know, lots of fans crowding the practice courts. We're not going to have that environment in Paris. So maybe Federer thinks that staying at home in Switzerland that week is a better use of his time. And it's not about the points. It's not about the prestige. It's about having a simplified tennis experience. And that notion of a simplified tennis experience might be the thing that he's really latching onto uh, psychologically as the best way for him to enter into Wimbledon. Uh, And, and, you know, we're not going to have packed crowds at Wimbledon. So you're not going to have that normal juice on center court. So maybe just the act of playing in Geneva is, is going to be Federer's way of uh, getting acclimatized to the new environment he's going to face uh, at these major tournaments. You know, the Roland Garros will be his first major tournament within the pandemic. It's going to be his first major tournament without, you know, a a sellout capacity crowd chanting his name. So, you know, there's so many different variables, so many things which are different from the norm that it just doesn't fit a typical paradigm. So Federer is making an atypical decision for sure, but he's making an atypical decision in a very atypical set of circumstances. And we need to keep that in mind. Sure. And
0: before we wrap this up, uh, let's also spare a thought for Daniel Medvedev who caught the COVID, I think virus uh, while, you know, he was in Monte Carlo this week. So let's wish him uh, full health and best of recovery. So I think, yeah, uh, let's wish Daniel Medvedev all the best. I hope to see him on the code. And if you disagree with me or Matt, drop us a line on Twitter. He's Matt Zemeck, and I'm Saqib Ali. We'll be back for more shows leading up to Paris. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.